God, we thank you that you have left a revelation of yourself in your word. And Father God, we just, we need it. We want to hear from you. And so Father God, we pray that you would speak through your word by the power of your spirit, that you would bring life to us this morning, that you'd bring hope to us this morning, that you would bring revelation of your will, your character, that you would change and transform us and make us into the people that you have called us to be, that we may display your light more fully in this world. We, I pray for this congregation, Lord of God, I pray that we would be a healthy church. I pray, Father God, that we would be a church that would bring you pleasure. I pray, God, that we would be a church that is quick to forgive each other and those in our midst. I pray that we would be a church that offers reconciliation. I pray, Lord God, that we would be a church in which your spirit dwells, in which holiness reigns, in which you are seen, felt, and heard. pray that you would give us our, your joy by the power of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, so, you know, we throughout the sermon series so far, if you've been with us, you've noticed it's been kind of each week has been a little generic. It's been a, a thing about life-giving living we've focused on that could easily apply to everyone without having to think it through too much. And yet, now we enter a kind of stage for a couple of weeks where the life-giving living we're looking at is focused on specific life categories. And I thought it'd be worth kind of having a, a preface to the sermon to talk about that because it's been my experience limited though it is, that sometimes we hear about a sermon that's talking about a life category that we're not in, and I've seen some good brothers and sisters just glaze over and sigh and think, why do I need to hear one about that again? At the worst, I've known some brothers and sisters whom I like who have said, I'm not going to church this morning. Why? Well, because it doesn't apply to me. <laughs> and I don't need to hear that, and I don't want to hear that. And so I thought it'd be worth pausing for a minute and to say, why and how do we listen to a sermon that is not on a life category we're in? Why should a single person want to hear a sermon on marriage? Why should a married person want to hear a sermon on dating? Why, why do we hear these things? So two things we're going to sit on briefly. One, you know, the Bible is not essentially a random collection of stories about key figures like Abraham and Moses and Joseph even though some children's and youth curriculum can easily give you that impression as you go through. And in the same way, the Bible is not kind of a, a uh, you like, you know, you go to Borders and they have the whole line of shelves, this for dummies, that for dummies, that for dummies. You know, we don't open up the Bible and say, I want to hear marriage for dummies. The Bible is a God-centered book. God is the author, God is the main character, the, the hand of God, the character of God drips on every page of the scriptures, regardless of what the immediate context is, be it the Mosaic law or the invasion or the Ten Commandments, it doesn't matter. God is the central figure. We can even read a book like Esther where God does, the name God does not appear in the book of Esther and yet God is everywhere. He's everywhere, sovereignly guiding, orchestrating, moving events to bring redemption for his people. When we read the scriptures, whatever the immediate context is, we're looking for God. We're looking for a revelation of God's character, of God's will. We're looking to meet Jesus. And so, regardless of the life category, we're, we're looking to meet God, and we can see God. Second thing we need to remember is that entering into sanctuary this morning, as you were all kind enough to do, is not like going on a Netflix. 
You know, we log on to Netflix, and what are we thinking? We, we go on, and we're thinking, what do I want to watch right now? What kind of movie do I want? Do I want to see something blow up, or do I want to see people cry and hug? All right? Do, what, what actor do I want to see right now? What, do I want to see an, a black and white movie? Do I want to see a movie in color? Do I want to see, you know, a movie in high def? It's really all about us, isn't it? And yet we enter in the church this morning, and we, we hear a sermon, and we, we sing the word, and we pray the word, and we give, and we take part in communion, because those are all things that God said, this is how I want you to worship me. And so again, God is the focus, not ourselves. And it's so entirely too easy for us to, to approach a church or a small group or a Bible study and say, it's great as long as it meets my needs and as long as it looks how I want it to look. And if it doesn't, maybe I'll stop going. And, and so maybe we hear, when we hear a sermon on the life category that does not immediately mesh with ours, it's an opportunity for us to give instead of getting. It's an opportunity for us to learn how we can better serve other parts of the body, who that life category does apply to. And so we hear a sermon on dating, and maybe we're not dating anymore, but we think, wow, if this is God's will, now that I know that I can better pray for those who are in that circumstance. As we hear a sermon on raising kids, we're thinking, well, I'm not raising kids now, but now I know how I can better encourage those who are, how I can better exhort those who are, how I can better maybe admonish those who are. And so, so, so we have to approach the scriptures realizing that it, they are God-centered and that it is not all about us. So now I'll stop preaching and I'll really preach. Okay, so we are in Proverbs chapter 5. If you want to open up Proverbs chapter 5, I think that's page 629, if you have a pew Bible right there in front of you. And I'd encourage you to kind of leave it open. We're going to walk through this slowly together as we go through it this morning in Proverbs chapter 5 and meditate on what it means to rejoice in the wife of your youth. So here we are, page 629, Proverbs chapter 5, starting in verse 1. My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Listen well to my words of insight that you may maintain discretion and your lips may preserve knowledge. Well, if, if you've been with us for a few weeks, you've noticed how much of a familiar refrain this is. Again and again throughout the book of Proverbs, we hear Solomon, listen to me, come here and listen to me, come here, listen to what I'm going to say to you. You know, he, he's very concerned that his sons and us might go listen somewhere else rather than listening to him. And as any loving father would be, he doesn't just want them to get instruction, he wants to get them to get the right instruction that they can follow wise counsel. It is so easy for us to draw our conclusions on marriage from Hollywood celebrities, from our favorite blogger or our favorite news site, from peers, from friends, from stuff we read in the newspaper, from our family of origin. Some of us just accept it. You know, you, you can remember the time maybe when you said, I'm never going to be like my parents. And then years later, maybe you step back and said, am I really like them? Oh, no. And, and, and we just accept it. And here's Solomon saying, come to me. Listen to my voice. God has given a revelation of his word regarding marriage, of how husbands and wife are to relate to each other, how they're to love each other, how they're to serve each other, the kind of roles that they're to have, how they're to raise children. And when it comes to marriage, Christians are not to be either traditionalists nor progressives. 
We are not to be Eastern nor Western. We are not to blindly accept the teaching of our family of origin, nor blindly reject it. We are to come to the living God and say, tell me how to do this. Tell me what your will is. Tell me, I need to hear your voice, not the voice of everyone else who's speaking to me. We are to come to before the throne of the living God, the King of creation, who invented marriage in Genesis 2. It wasn't even on Adam's mind. Everything was good. It was good. It was good. Then, you know, we see the first malediction scripture. He's alone. Not good. Not good. Don't leave a man to himself. You never know what will happen. And God creates marriage. And, and so let's go to the source. The glorious king to whom we hearken. Step one in enjoying a life-giving marriage is going to God alone for instruction and guidance. Verse 3. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is as bitter as gall, sharp as a double-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lead straight to the grave. She gives no thought to the way of her life. Her paths are crooked, but she knows it not. You know, throughout the book of Proverbs, we see this continued juxtaposition between a good portrait of masculinity or femininity or a bad portrait. We've got the adulteress, and we've got the wife of, of noble character. We've got the fool, and we've got the man who lives in fear of the Lord. And here we see a negative depiction of this woman. Her lips drip honey, and she is smooth. What a picture. She's the kind of person that, she, she just knows, I got him pegged. I know exactly what he wants to hear. I know how he wants to hear it. And I know how I can speak to him in a way that's going to keep him listening and coming back. She's the person, you know, telling the guy how handsome he is, how athletic he is, how wonderful he is, what a hard worker he is. She's given him the ego boost. I think at their heart, every man wants to be desired and appreciated as a hero as a provider, as a protector, as a knight in shining armor. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say I think most women want to be loved, appreciated, fought for, protected, valued, and listened to. And when you've got someone else speaking all those things into your ear, it's impossible to not listen. It's like all of a sudden the radio station connects and you're tuned in and you're going, keep going, I like this. Let's have some coffee, sit down, I want to hear more. She is smooth. She has got an answer for any potential excuse he has. As she's sitting there, you know, working her magic, anything he comes up with, she can respond to. Wrong? Oh, it's not wrong, honey. Think about it. You're what? I love you. Don't we love each other? Aren't we consenting adults? This isn't wrong. Get in trouble? Oh, don't worry about My husband went away for a month. I've closed the shades. No one's going to catch us. No one's going to find out we're safe. Your wife? She'll never know. It won't hurt her. And hey, when was the last time you slept with your wife? Who loves you more? This woman is smooth. And he is listening. You know, the uh, English Standard Version translates adulteress as forbidden woman. And I think that really starts to unravel for us what's really going on in the situation. It's not just that she's an adulteress. Solomon is trying to show us how abnormal this behavior is from God's perspective. 
He's trying to show us how wrong and this, this behavior is from God's perspective. That you'd each have, again, an adult dressed in a man, two married people having an affair with each other. You almost get the sense that each of these two people are viewing marriage as a contract rather than a covenant. You see, in a contract, we can think about the difference. In a contract, we each agree to two, two different things. And maybe I don't have to do my end of the bargain until you do your end of the bargain. And if you stop doing your end of the bargain, I'm very free to stop doing my end of the bargain. And it's really easy to back out of the contract. I've known some men, they base their marriages this way. I've talked to guys who refer to their wives in the most crude language. Like, curse their wives out to their face. And I've said to them, why do you do this? Why are you cursing out your wife? Is this helpful? Well, she cursed me out first. Okay. It's like doing marriage counseling with a sixth grader. You know, hey, why don't you sweep her off her feet? Why don't you buy her roses? Why don't you let her know that you love her? Well, she hasn't done anything for me lately. Okay. And, and so some of us, we approach marriage as, as what we can, we're only going to give if we can get, and it's this back and forth, and if one side stops, we're done. Let them love me before I love them. If they stop loving me, I don't have to love them. And that is not how God ordained marriage to be. He ordained marriage to be a covenant. And step two in a life-giving marriage is viewing it as a covenant. You know, covenant is an important word in the Bible. I cannot exhaust its full meaning here this morning. There are some shades of difference. And yet, I think at base, a covenant is a promise. It's a guarantee. God comes to Noah after the flood has happened and says, I am never going to flood the earth again. That's my covenant. That's my promise. Noah can live the rest of his life in peace, knowing that neither he nor his children nor his future grandchildren will go through the same ordeal that they just went through. God comes to David and says, a descendant of your line will reign on the throne forever. This is a permanent fixture in my sight. David can approach his end in peace, knowing I'm not going to be wiped out. Some enemy's not going to come in and destroy my descendants. God is going to bless me. I can rest in that. In Jeremiah 31, God comes to us and says, this isn't working. You've got hearts of stone. But you know what? I'm going to give you hearts of flesh. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you new desires. I am going to give you the ability to love me. I am going to put my words and my will in your heart and you are going to love me. I'm going to do something you can't do. And you can rest in that. Covenants do not allow us to be lazy, but they allow us to rest peacefully, calmly, securely, safely, protected. We know that there is a God who is for us. We know there is a God who beckons us to come to Him. The Scriptures tell us in Hebrews 4, confidently, even when we've sinned. Because we know He's for me. I have this foundation that is not going to get moved and washed away. There's a permanence to this relationship. We worship a covenant-keeping God who the Scriptures tell us rejoices over us with singing who keeps every promise that He makes, who says, I hold you in my hand and there is not a thing in heaven and earth that can pluck you out of my hand because I reign in the heavens and I do all that I please. Psalm 115. Hallelujah that we worship a covenant-keeping God. Otherwise, every day of our lives would be right to be filled with fear 
and terror. And in marriage, God calls us to mirror that covenant faithfulness. In marriage, God calls us to love and serve each other and, and to, to view our marriage as the opportunity to give our partner that measure of protection, of security, of safety, because they know they, we are for them, that they can rest in our relationship, that they do not have to walk around as if they're walking around on glass. Imagine the freedom that you can have in your marriage if you approach it as a covenant and put structures in place to help allow your spouse to see it as a covenant. The joy you will have. Who is ever going to go listen to the voice of the adulteress when they know, my spouse is for me. They love me. We're solid. We have a foundation. I can trust our marriage. I can trust them. And this is meant to endure. Verse 8. Keep to a path far from her. Do not go near the door of her house. Step 3, Solomon teaches us how to fight for our marriage. We've got this emotional plea that really fits for any kind of temptation we can talk about under heaven. You notice, he doesn't just say, hey, don't sin. Don't commit adultery. It's a bad idea. He doesn't just say, don't do that. He doesn't say, hey, listen, when, when, you know, when you're there and, and you, you hang out with the adulteress every Thursday and you talk to her and she tries to get you to have an affair, don't give in. He says, I don't even want you to look at her. I don't want you to go near the door of her house. I don't want you to be anywhere around the threat of temptation. Avoid it like the plague. Sometimes as Christians, I think we get this confused. We think that spiritual maturity is being some kind of Superman or Wonder Woman. Where we're like, I'm mature, I can resist temptation. I can talk to the adulteress all day long and I will not be moved. I could, I could find out, I could, you know, have the opportunity to, you know, steal this money and a million dollars could be sitting in front of me all day and all night and I would never take it even though no one would notice. We think that's maturity. And here, he tells us discipline is not being the man of spiritual steel. Discipline is being smart enough to know, if I go there, I'll mess up. You know, discipline is knowing your weaknesses well enough to know, hey, under the wrong set of circumstances, I will always fail. And so I'm not going to go there. That is spiritual maturity. You know, my, um, my father was an alcoholic for pretty much all of his adult life. And a few years before he died, though, he got sober. And... Amazing, amazing, he knew this. Not a believer, but he knew this. All of a sudden, he didn't go to the bar five days a week like he used to go. He didn't hang out with the same group of friends and do shots like he used to. All of a sudden, instead of going to the bar, he'd go to AA meetings every night. All of a sudden, we couldn't have cough syrup in the house because he was well aware of his own weakness. He knew, I will, if it is there, I'll be anxious, I'll open the cabinet, the cough syrup will be there, it'll be gone in three seconds, and I'll be going to CVS because I'm sick. He knew his weakness. He knew where he would fall. Everything had to change. That is spiritual maturity. You know, I have the utmost respect for parents I've known who have said, yeah, we love, we love technology, we love the computer, but, but this is bringing a temptation into our home. So we're not going to get Wi-Fi in the house. We're not going to give everyone a computer in their own room. We're going to have a computer and it's going to be here in the kitchen so that everything is public and all of us can be better safeguarded to be pure. 
Spiritual maturity is the adult man I knew who graced me some time ago when he came to me and said, I don't trust myself. I, I want to sign up so every week you're going to get emailed every website I looked at with the link so you can go to it and double check on me. And, and it will be coded so you'll see what's objectionable, objectionable content and what's not. Adult man, that was maturity. He knew he needed to be accountable. He needed to put himself in the place to succeed and honor the Lord. Discipline is not about the person who can resist any kind of temptation. It's about avoiding the place where you know temptation is. That's how you fight for your marriage. That's how you fight against any temptation. Step four, Solomon wants us to have no illusions about the alternative. Verse nine, lest you give your best strength to others and your years to the one who is cruel. Lest strangers feast on your wealth and your toil enrich another man's house. At the end of your life, you will groan when your flesh and your body are spent. You will say, how I hated discipline. My heart spurned correction. I would not obey my teachers or listen to my instructors. I have come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the whole assembly. You know, there's a very real danger associated with adultery that the would-be adulterer I don't think ever really thinks about as they're going down that path. And here Solomon is trying to inform us of the foolishness of that. We, have, we see three very natural punishments that he lists that can happen. He says, hey, you commit adultery, there's a very real chance that either your spouse's family or this person's family is going to want to come after you with a Louisville slugger. You are in physical danger if you do this and don't think that you're not. It's not going to go easy on you. He says, hey, you know, there, there is this shame associated. What's going to happen when people find out that you've done this? How are you going to go into the assembly when it's known what you did to your spouse and your children? There is a shame that you need to be saved from. He, he says, what about the mental agony? Do you want, even if you finally get it, do you want to approach the end of your life saying, I knew it and I disregarded it. I knew the truth and I disobeyed. You will be in mental anguish over your foolishness. You know, pe pe I think any sin, we approach any sin because we think that sin is going to give us more joy. We think, I think following this path is going to give me greater joy than following God's path. And so this is the way I'll go. And here he is le leaving no illusions about what that warped picture really is. Step five, we see a picture of the life-giving nature of covenantal marriage. Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern. Running water from your own well. Should your springs overflow in the streets? Should your streams of water in the public squares? Let them be yours alone. Never be shared with another woman, with strangers. May your fountain be blessed and may you rejoice in the wife of your youth, a loving doe, a graceful deer. May her breast satisfy you always. May you ever be captivated by her love. Here we get, we get a metaphor, an extended metaphor. How many times do you see water come up in the metaphor? Stream, fountain, spring, well, cistern. Clearly Solomon's trying to conjure an image for us. And, and on the one hand, I think that image, if, if, we, if we look at the rest of Scripture, is very sexual. Very much Scripture compares some of this metaphorical language to sex within covenantal marriage. Yet I think, I think there's, there's a secondary portion, and that's... What does water do for us? Water nourishes us. Water strengthens us. Water sustains us. 
We drink what wa- wa- our bodies are made up, I think, of 90% water. We need water. If I don't have water in about 20 minutes, I'm going to get a headache. So we've got to get this going. You know, we, water, water gives us life. We need water. And here he's saying, look at your spouse. Go to your spouse as the one to nourish, revive, and sustain you. Don't go to the, someone of the opposite sex who's not your spouse and make them your closest confidant, your most trusted ally, the person you pour your heart out to the most, the person who you fawn all over, whose approval you most work for. Don't do it. I will never understand people who tell me, hey, this person of the opposite sex, not my spouse, they're my best friend. That's like the train lights are going. The train lights are going off. Warning. I mean, in fact, I'll really never understand people who say someone of the, the, the same sex, not my spouse, is my best friend. Because you're, your best friend generally is the one that you're supposed to go to for that immense nourishment, revival, life, encouragement, value. And so this is a good lesson for those of you who are not married yet. Don't get married to someone who's not your best friend. Not a good way to start. Not a good way to start. I rest confidently and peacefully every day because I would rather spend time with my wife than anyone else on this planet because she is the person that I trust the most. She's the only one that can get away with telling me some of the things she tells me, and I know she still loves me. I don't have to ask. I love my wife. She's my best friend. And it's not about us. It's about God's picture of life-giving marriage. And yet if we're going to do this, if you're going to go to your spouse... You've, each of you has to create the ability, the safety for your spouse to do that. It's really easy to say, well, go to your spouse like you're well and your sister. And, but they've got to give you that freedom. You know, it, it, your spouse is not going to go to you f- for life and nourishment if every time they go to you and they admit a failure or a sin, you pound them into the ground. You give them an I told you so. You give them you should have known better. If, if you just take every opportunity to make your spouse look foolish, they're probably not going to look to you for a drink. Just saying. It, it doesn't work that way. We need to create an atmosphere of grace and love and marriage that your spouse can know. Even if I've got to commit this embarrassing sin to my spouse, confess this sin, I know they're going to love me and respect me, and they're going to pray with me. I know they're going to forgive me, even if it's hard. That is the environment we cultivate together by the power of Christ, because the gospel is strong enough for that. Because we each know that we are each sinners in need of a Savior, and any time I confess my, my sin to them or they confess their sin to me, the other one is not approaching it like a Pharisee with an attitude of perfection, and we each know that. Our marriage is a safe place that we can go to to drink and drink deeply. There's this spiritual fulfillment. There's this emotional fulfillment. There's this physical fulfillment. And I've been in ministry long enough now that um, I've seen peers that I have gone to seminary with start to drop out. And it's kind of a weird, sobering thing when you start seeing people you knew that got an education that really qualifies you to do nothing else in the world dropping out of ministry. Either, sometimes it's due to difficulty. Sometimes maybe they say, I don't think I was ever called. Sometimes it's some kind of disqualifying sin. Had a, uh, a brother in New England just last year. He was given the pleasure to resign from his church. Came out that he'd had an affair for two years, even though he had a, a lovely wife and just a handful of lovely kids. 
And, and this is a case where, this is a guy that, if, you know, if everything came out and we processed this, he probably never should have been a pastor to begin with. He, at least for a while, he, he needed a little more marriage counseling rather than ministry. You see, he and his wife didn't have that relationship. They didn't encourage each other. They did not pray for each other. They did not support each other. They were not best friends. They did not go to each other's wells and cisterns for life and joy. And yet God made us to want those things, didn't he? And so if we don't get it from our spouse, where are we going to get it? Somewhere else. And so that happened, you know. He started preaching, and so a woman in his church, you know, initially she came in for some counseling, and she kept telling him what of a great counselor he was. He could do pat First time in a long time he'd ever heard anyone say, you're good at something. And she kept telling him he was good at something. All of a sudden, after every week, an email came in about the sermon and how life-changing it was and how encouraging it was. And she began, and it's amazing that she used spiritual language. He was such a great prayer. He was such a great father. They began talking on the phone every day while he was at work. And after this going on for a year, one day she picked up the phone, she called him and she said, hey, why don't you come over? And he did. He did. And it was the beginning of the end. We have to go to our own cisterns. He thought he was going to get joy. And he got a double-edged sword. He got something bitter as gall that his entire family is suffering from. Go to your spouse. Go to your spouse. You notice in this section, we have emotional going. There's an emotional component and a physical component. Go to your spouse for that life-giving encouragement and revival. And go to your wife for physical encouragement. Verse 18, men are commanded to rejoice in the wife of their youth. You know, rejoice is an action. It's an active verb. It's not passive. It's not the kind of thing that you just, it just mysteriously, spontaneously happens on its own. You don't just rejoice and not realize it. You choose to rejoice. And both of us, men and women, ought to make this a regular pattern of our lives. Are, are we just like all the time telling us, building our spouse up and telling them how great they are, how much we love them, how much we appreciate them, how much we value them? Are we building in? You know, it's, they say it takes like, I think, seven positive comments to erase the, the difficulty and the pain of one negative comment. What an opportunity we have. Forget about going seven to one. Let's go 50 to one. That our spouse would know that we're for them. If someone went and heard you talking about your spouse in the gathering hall or at a party, would they hear you talk about how much you love, appreciate, and value them? Or would they hear you tearing your spouse apart? I've seen times when I've walked in and I am shocked at the way I hear someone talk about their spouse when they're not around, or even when they are around. It's devastating. And, and so if I heard you talking about your spouse, would I think, good grief, they are in such love together. Or would the would-be adulterer think, here's an opening. Here's an opening. Satan wants to break up our marriages as surely as he wants to damage our faith. If you want to have a life-giving marriage, you need to actively rejoice in your spouse with the same passion, zeal, and zest that you had when you were first trying to sell them on going out with you on a date. Trying to get them to overlook the old ratty car, the bad hair, clothes. And you were saying, will you just go out with me? And, and notice he says that, rejoice in the wife of your youth. And so it's almost like I think Solomon's imagining he's talking to people that they've been married for maybe 10, 20, 30 years. They've been there. 
And he's saying, I want you to go to back to the way you felt when you were first head over heels in love with them. And, you know, you were doodling their name on the page. You, were, you know, if you were a woman, you were writing. They got, what would my name look like if I had his last name? And you're writing it down. And if, you know, you're a guy, you're just dreaming about them every other moment where your friends say, will you just focus already? We're losing the game. Get in the game and hit the ball. Stop thinking about her. Sin, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Remember what it was like to be in love. Build on that. Regularly imitate Christ by laying down your rights for your spouse. Order your life around planning date nights, buying each other flowers, sitting on the couch, laughing, talking about things that interest each other, praying for one another, making sure that they feel your love. Sometimes as men and women, we've got to be honest, we think we're doing something that would help our spouse feel loved, but it doesn't help them feel loved. We're trying, but they're not a receiver in that way. One of the best things I ever, I ever did with, my, with Corey and I, we went and we made a list. We made a one to ten. We said, these are the ten things that I think would be most significant for me to do to you. You know, for, ways for me to serve you and make you feel loved. And then she would write a list of what the real ten were. And then we compared. And it was beautiful. It was like, oh boy, I've wasted a lot of time. <laughs> Man, flat, oh. Spent a lot of money on flowers, maybe I didn't need to. I don't know. Wouldn't it be amazing if you cultivated a life with your spouse that when you go out on a date, you're just going out on a date, and you're there and you're holding hands and you're talking and you're leaning together close, that people come up to you and say, are you on your honeymoon? Is this like your 30th wedding anniversary? Wouldn't it be amazing for you to look and say, no, we're just out on another date. We're in love by the power of Christ. What an opportunity we're told to uh, and now someone may respond but I don't feel like it if I felt that way I would love him or her that way but I'm just I'm not feeling it and the scriptures give us something important here too you know God tells us we're to love him with all of our heart, mind, soul and strength right? the Hebrew word for heart could better be translated or you know really means will will you know, the, the, the Jews thought of the heart as, as the place where we made resolutions, where we made decisions, where we committed to something. I choose this. He says, love the Lord with all your heart. He's saying, choose to love me and worship me. Don't wait around until you feel like, if you're a man, singing out loud in public, in church. Don't wait for that. It'll never come. Unless you're one of the guys that graciously does the choir every week. Just do it. Love the Lord with all of your heart. You know, if... Um, God loved us while we were still in our sins, and the joy of the gospel is that he sought us, he bought us, and he saved us before any of us were looking for him. And we have the opportunity to love our spouses in the same way, regardless of how we're being loved, to just love them, to pour ourselves out in love for them. They're going to notice. And if even if they do not, it is an opportunity to worship the Lord. We're serving Christ as we serve them. Rejoice and pursue your spouse physically. Pursue her emotionally. Did you hear about the pastor in Florida? Made national headlines a couple of years ago. It's hysterical. I love the things in church that make national headlines. This pastor, he challenged his church. He challenged every married, married couple in his church. He said, I want every married couple to um, sleep with your wife every day for 30 days in a row. He took a billboard out on I-95, called it the Marriage Challenge. They got a lot of hits on their website that month. <laughs> what is this? 
And yet, it's so ironic that I think much of our culture, we look to the gossip magazines on the checkout counter as we're going through the thing. We look to Dr. Drew. We look to Hollywood. We look to pornography to teach us about sexuality instead of looking to the God who made it for our enjoyment within marriage. And so I just want to mirror the text by kindly and carefully suggesting that the best thing that some of us can do is go home, read Song of Solomon together, and celebrate what God has made. Marriage. God has created marriage, and I think there is the sense in which God wants every one of us to be married, and now you're paying attention. Ephesians 5 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. God created marriage to be a lifelong commitment marked by unity and affection. And here, Paul's telling us that from the very beginning, God created marriage to shine forth the intimacy, the unity, the security that we are to have if we are followers of Jesus Christ. And so it's that sense in which God wants every one of us to be married. Because God wants every one of us to realize that He's the bridegroom standing there at the front of the altar and we're walking down. And He wants us to enter in into life with Him. He wants us to lay down the name we used to have. Lay down the path we used to think we were going to walk. He wants us to surrender our lives. And He tells us that we're walking forward. We're, not, we're walking forward in a raggedy dress without a dowry and some dead roses hanging from a stem. And he says, but I have chosen to love you. I died for you while you were still in your sins looking like that. But if you put your faith and trust in me, I will make you white as snow. I will give you a white dress. I will will make you beautiful. Like the most beautiful of brides any magazine could ever conjure. And I will be for you. I will be with you. We will covenant together. You know, God could have said, yeah, I'm going to save you. Worship me like a slave. Get down on your knees and kiss the ground every time you come into my presence. And this is what makes Christianity different than any other religion. Jesus Christ says, I want to love you so much. I love you so much. I want to be so unified with you. I am like the bridegroom and you are like the bride. Like that you would be my spouse that she would be the one I would rejoice with, I would invest in. You are my treasure. If you'll come to me, I will make you white as snow and I will usher you into the greatest, most intimate relationship this universe has. Such is the love of God. When we rejoice in marriage, we rejoice in our salvation. Father God, I pray that you would take us, poor pilgrims that we are, and usher us more fully into the fullness of your grace. Father, I pray that you would strengthen our marriages. Every marriage in this church, God, I pray that you would strengthen, that you would build up, that you would help us to love our spouses as you love the church. God, I pray for those of us that are not married, I pray that you would help us and all of us to rejoice in the intimacy that you call us to. I pray, God, for those of us, any in this room that are not saved, God, I pray that this would be the day where they would surrender their lives to you, repent of their sins, and enjoy 
the life that you offer. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.